was uh, National Chippery Sunday. It was everyone got an extra hour of sleep, and it was real happy. The passages were okay. wasn't too heavy. This week is the opposite of National Chippery Sunday. Um, you're going to see why in a, a, a little bit. But for those of you who are just kind of joining us or just a, a brief review to catch us up, we are in a series going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're in a particular section entitled The Sermon on the Mount, and it's the greatest story ever given. It's a sermon by Jesus given in northern Galilee to a large group of people. And in it, he is revealing God's moral standards, his ethical demands of the world. Now, what you need to know is something that, I, something that I mentioned several weeks ago is that historically speaking, there's roughly 27 different interpretations or ways to approach the Sermon on the Mount, like 27. And I can tell you that a big chunk of those are all attempting to wiggle out of the ethical demands of Jesus. Jesus like, sets his standards here, very, very high. He says, this is what God's perfect law looks like. And when people approach it, that standard is so high, many times, if not most of the times, people will try to kind of wiggle out of it. And the way they do that is they say, well, these, these uh, teachings really aren't for... Um, hold on, let me check something. There we go. These teachings really aren't uh, for us today. They were for the people living in Jesus' time. It was a unique period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that's why you get these like really strict times. They were for when Jesus was here. Some people say they're for ethics for the end time. Some people even argue that they are for ethnic Jews in Israel during something called the millennial reign of Christ. And we don't have to get into all that theology, but what you need to understand is that they're all sort of trying to wiggle out of it. Like, ah, we can't really expect people to live like this. And our approach is this we are going to do our best to actually obey what Jesus said. We are to be a Sermon on the Mount people. It doesn't mean that we're going to do it perfectly. It actually presupposes we're going to fail and oftentimes fail miserably. But we're not going to wiggle out of this. Jesus is Lord, and we're supposed to come under his lordship and thus under his ethical and moral teachings. And so we're going to try our best to be a Sermon on the Mount people. Now, last week, Jesus began, doing, began uh, introducing this formula, and the formula goes something like this. You have heard it said, ABC, but I tell you XYZ. And what he does is he looks at some command in the Old Testament or an understanding of a command in the Old Testament and says, look, I know you've heard this and you're looking at it like this, but I tell you this. And usually what happens is Jesus doesn't like, look poorly upon the old command, he actually goes deeper into it and reveals to you with crystal clear, high-definition de resolution, this is actually what this command was getting at. So you've heard it said, do not murder, this external action, right? I tell you, if you have anger in your heart, you are guilty and in danger of judgment. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I tell you, if you have lust in your heart, you look with lust at a woman, then you're in danger type of thing. So essentially... Before, it was about the external action, the deed, murder or adultery. And Jesus now says, no, that's not enough. It's not enough to just not do the final kind of external action. You have to understand that there's roots of those things inside of your heart. And so last week, we talked about how 
the same seed that grows into adultery is the same seed that sprouts as lust. And so you might have uh, uh, some small sprouts of lust in your life. God, oh, no big deal. I struggle with lust. And what Jesus says, no, deal with that. Deal with it immediately because it's the same substance. It's the same seed. And given the right conditions, the right soil, the white water and the, water and the right sunlight, that little sprout that's just a little lust can grow in to full-blown adultery. And we talked about how uh, just as a pastor, it's, it's rare that someone comes up with a marriage on the line saying, oh, I just woke up today and I, wanna, I just want to wreck my marriage. I'm over it. Most of the time, there's things that start off small and they take root and they germinate and they sprout and they grow and they're not dealt with. And so Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. And yes, that's exaggerated metaphoric language, but the point of that is deal with this immediately. It's that dangerous. Now, what do you think Jesus immediately wants to talk about right after he talks about lust? Divorce. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, that's why I said last week was National Chippery Sunday. That's going to get all difficult. A few disclaimers. There's many disclaimers, but I'll focus on a few. The first disclaimer is uh, what I understand, what we all need to understand, is that in this room and in this church, there is a diverse body of people from all different backgrounds. We all have different stories. Some of you are happily married. Some of you, if you're honest, your marriage is struggling. Some of you are divorce. Some of you are divorced and remarried. Some of you are divorced and you haven't remarried. Some of you are widows. You've been widowed, widowers. Some of you are single. Some of you are single and you want to be married. Some of you are single and you don't want to be married. So there's like, I I understand that spectrum of people in the room. And I say that because I want to be sensitive to all of our different histories because our histories tend to influence how we approach the text. And what we want to do is do our best to look at the words of Jesus and honor them type, type of thing. Um, secondly, um, because there's that diverse background of people, oftentimes, this happens all the time, but in, in kind of messages that deal with intensity, intense topics, there's a, there's a tendency to, to, for someone to think like, oh, the, they're just addressing my issues type of thing. I never address, we never address your issues. Like people have come up to me and like, you were talking about me, Pastor. I was like, not only was I not talking about you, I don't even think I know who you are. <laughs> like a type, type, type of thing. And so um, we don't do that here. So if, if something is like specifically talking to your situation, that's between you and God. It's for real. It's not, it's, we just don't do that. Um, third, I never want to water down the words of Jesus for you. And I never want to water down what the Bible has to say. And I never want to be ashamed or embarrassed by the standards of the Bible and try to wiggle out of them. We want to do our best to honor the words of Jesus. He's our Lord. We're supposed to submit to him and come under his lordship, uh, whether that's easy or difficult. Okay. Uh, Next, I want to address the fact that whenever we deal with stuff like this, 
a big chunk of you, and, and there's nothing wrong with this, rightfully so, your mind immediately gravita- gravitates towards a specific question, and that's this. What constitutes a legitimate divorce in the Bible? Because of our diverse backgrounds and our histories, we kind of want to know, well, was my divorce okay? Can, can I remarry? Can, what's, what's this specific situation? Where's the line that has to be crossed for something? And just heads up, we are not going to get into those specific questions today. It's not that we're afraid to or we're just kind of not dealing with it. We're just pushing that to Matthew 19. Because in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is going to deal with the Pharisees asking questions about this. And it's a much fully developed passage relating to divorce and remarriage. In our section for today on the Sermon on the Mount, it's two verses where we get a glimpse of God's ideal for human relationships and marriage. It's two verses, and then he's going to go on and we'll discuss oaths and vows. So it's not that we're, we're, those questions aren't good questions. We're just going to get to those when we approach Matthew 19. But we want to approach the issue that Jesus is dealing with in our specific situation. Because Jesus is addressing a very specific conversation and a very specific conversation. He says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual morality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, Notice how the, the, the question is around a husband divorcing a wife, right? And that's because there's a specific historical situation that's in mind. There were, in first century Israel, women who divorced men. However, that was extremely rare, extremely rare. The vast majority of the time, it's men divorcing women. Women, even if they weren't happy or satisfied or liked their husband— they were com- usually completely economically dependent upon that man for their survival. The ancient world's a brutal world. And so unless you were like economically independent, which would be extremely rare for this situation, the majority of the divorces that are taking place are men divorcing women. And the men are asking questions. And the questions are not, how can I best honor my covenant? How can I best... Fulfill my commitments in this marriage. What many of the people are doing are, what is like the minimum thing that has to occur for me to divorce my wife? And they're basing this off a discussion that takes place in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And Deuteronomy 24 is dealing with this unique situation where a woman is divorced and she remarries and the second marriage either ends in divorce or death and it gives a law that says, that, that discusses how now the newly divorced or widowed woman in the second marriage is to relate to the husband of the first marriage. But in that conversation, these first verses are said, and this is where sort of the debate comes from. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a divorce certificate and puts and puts in her hand and, and puts it in her hand, I'm sorry, and sends her out of his house. Okay. The keys that the, the key component we want to focus on is this finds no favor because he has found some indecency in her. So what people are asking is, what do you mean by finds no favor? What do you mean by indecency? And depending upon your internal motivations, you might focus on one of those phrases more than the other. You could see how someone might want to focus on finds no favor for grounds for a divorce. 
And you could see how someone might say, no, no, there needs to be indecency. But then someone would push back and say, well, define indecency. What do you mean by that? Everyone's looking for like the line. Where's the line? Jesus enters into that conversation and says, unless there is sexual immorality, the covenant of marriage should be honored. Now, this is profound because I want you to see the types of conversations that are taking place. We have the literature from this world, from the first century world, about what people were saying about divorce. And there's different schools of thought following different rabbis. And so you can see the house of Shammai following the rabbi Shammai said that a man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity. So the school of Shammai following this rabbi would say only if there's unchastity. But notice the words here. A man should divorce. It's not saying there's not an option for reconciliation or restoration. It's saying a man should divorce if there's some level of unchastity. The house of Hillel, second following Rabbi Hillel, says this, even if she spoiled his dish. So what is that emphasizing from Deuteronomy 24? Finds no favor. They're going to hone in on finds no favor and go, well, the law of Moses says, if I find no favor in my wife, I'm permitted to divorce her. So even if she spoils a dish, dinner's not good that night, divorce. <laughs> Akiba says, even if he found someone else prettier than she. And so we have literature that, that takes up this same sentiment. For example, Josephus, a first century historian, talks about his divorce and remarriage. And if you read it, it's just this haphazard kind of nonchalant. Yeah, you know, I had this first wife, wasn't going good, and I found someone better. It's like really, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but when you read it, it's just no commitment to the original covenant. So people are trying to wiggle out of the original covenant of marriage. And they're looking at Deuteronomy 24 for justification and grounds. Jesus enters into that specific conversation and says, unless sexual immorality occurs, the covenant should be honored. And sexual immorality, by the way, breaks the original covenantal vows. So it's almost the saying, unless there's something that actually breaks those covenantal vows, betrays those, then you strive to honor the covenant. Again, oftentimes we really want to know, because then some of you are going, well, define sexual morality. What exactly does that mean? And the scripture is going to speak to that, and we'll discuss that later as we get into Matthew 19. But here, here's, the, here's the problem with even that frame of reference, and I get why those questions are asked. I get it. But we immediately want to know, where's the line? Tell me, to, like, it's like in youth group days, for those of you who, in youth group, if you, ever, if you grew up in the church and you went to youth group, like they'd always ask the, the youth pastor, like, how far is too far with my girlfriend? The question wasn't, how best can I honor the Lord in my relationships with my boyfriend or girlfriend? It's always like, yo, you know, we're Christian. Like, where's the line? And then if, if you tell them a line, what's gonna happen? They're gonna dance right on that line, man. <laughs> and we do that with, and so, so we're gonna get to those questions, because the Bible speaks to those questions. 
But for today, the point is, unless there is a fundamental breaking of the covenantal vow, Jesus is saying this should be honored and supported. And I say that not to make people in this room feel guilty or bad or bring up shame because, again, I know the diversity in the room. I know the pain, the hurt. Some of you were the the reason why marriages failed. Some of you were abandoned and cheated on and betrayed. So I know all of that. So I'm not saying this is Jesus' standard, strive to obey it to make anyone feel bad. It's precisely the opposite. It's because those of you who have experienced the pain of divorce know the hurt and pain that it causes and you don't want anyone else to go through that. I don't want you to go through it. So I want to be sensitive to those pains, but I also want to tell people, don't do this, man. Don't go down that road. It's very dangerous. The pain that it, that it causes in relationships, in families, in children, is immense. And those of you who have gone through it, you know what I'm talking about. So we strive to honor the covenant as much as we possibly can. Now, does Jesus just say honor this covenant for a pragmatic reason to to say uh, we want to avoid unnecessary hurt and pain? And the answer to that question is is yes, Jesus wants to have you avoid unnecessary hurt and pain. Doesn't want you to to experience that. But there's more to it than that. There's more to the covenant of marriage. And to understand that, we have to go all the way back to creation. And if you've been coming to this church for some time or ever heard me um, at a wedding, I've, I've talked about this, but it's, it's incredibly important for our discussion today. Marriage is introduced in creation, and it's the climax of a pattern that's been taking place in every, all the days of creation. So in, creation, in the creation account, you have the introduction of pairs, And the pairs are introduced as functionally different equal opposites that are meant to come together in unity and oneness. So what I mean by that is there's things that are different, they function differently, and by nature they're different, but God designs them in a pair so that they come together and form a union of oneness. So you have heaven and earth, you have night and day, you have land and sea, sun and moon, and at the end of this, At the climax of this creation pattern, you have the introduction of the last pair of functionally different equal opposites. Man, woman, male, female. They are distinct. They are different. They are not the same. Functionally different, but equal opposites that are intended to what? Come together and form a union, a a type of oneness. This is why it says immediately at that point, for this reason, A man leaves his mother and father and holds fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. It's one flesh. That's precisely, by the way, why it hurts so bad when covenantal relationships come apart. Because there's a one flesh union that is being torn apart. And it could be worse than death, right? Some of you know this. It can feel worse than death itself, the tearing apart of that oneness. So think about this. Marriage is embedded into the organizational structure of the universe. The patterns of creation begin heaven, earth, darkness, light, night, day, sun, moon, land, sea, man, woman, marriage. It's the ending of the pattern of the organizational structure of the very cosmos. It's a significant 
It is not a mere social contract that human beings invented after the fact. It's embedded in creation by God. It's even deeper than that. It's even crazier than that. Because then when you read the scriptures, the idea of marriage, the institution of marriage, is used then as an image to describe the love of God. So in the Old Testament, Israel is described as the bride. And in the New Testament, the church is described as the bride of Christ. And so earthly marriage then begins to develop as an image pointing to the love of God, namely the love of God for his people. It's this image, but it gets, it's, it's, even, it's even crazier. And, and you gotta go, it's like you go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into it because it even goes further than that. Later, Paul the Apostle in Ephesians will comment on the institution of marriage as it was established in creation. And he says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. By the way, in this section, this is where Paul um, teaches that men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And he he gives several examples of of the the interpersonal dynamics between husbands and wives that Christians ought to emulate. Um, And you just need to know, remember those conversations that they were having from Shammai and Hillel? If she spoils the dish of food, if you find someone that you like better, like the first Christian stepped on the scene and told men in that world, you ought to love your bride as Christ loves the church. You understand how revolutionary and radical the claims of the first Christians were for the institution of marriage. It's incredible what they've done. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are his members of his body. Now, here's the key, 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You remember that? That's what we just talked about from Genesis. We just talked about Genesis. Paul quotes that and then says in verse 32, This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So earthly marriage then is embedded into the created order so that there's a sign or a signpost pointing to the greater marriage, the greater reality, the love that Christ has for his church. Earthly marriage is a living, walking, breathing example, signpost of ultimate reality the ultimate marriage, the love that God has for his people. So in this way, marriage is not an anthropomorphic image. It is a theomorphic image. Let me say what I mean by that. Anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphic is when you ascribe or give human characteristics, attributes, or actions to something that's not human. So you give characteristics and qualities or actions that humans do and you give it to something that's not human. So Mickey Mouse is anthropomorphic. You know, he's a little cartoon mouse, but you give him human-like characteristics and attributes. He talks, he runs around, he has feelings, he goes on adventures. Um, some, of the way, some, some of you interact with your dogs in an anthropomorphic way. You ascribe to them human-like qualities, characteristics, and actions. They are not, your dog is not thinking on the level that you think he thinks. 
Like that's, it doesn't work that way. He doesn't think and feel or operate on that level. You are ascribing all these human-like characteristics to it. I mean, I know you feel like you're in this, this relationship and there's ups and downs and there's good days and bad days. It doesn't work that he's a dog. It's a dog that's anthropomorphic. Now I know. Watch. Out of all the stuff I could get hate mail, out of this sermon... You're going to, actually, pastor, new research shows that dogs, actually, pastor, stay in your lane. No, your dog doesn't, doesn't, it's not a human. It's not a human. Uh, The scriptures say that the eyes of the Lord, like, search the earth. That's anthropomorphic language. God doesn't have two literal eyeballs like a human. We're using what we call analogous language, analogy. We're using how humans see and using that language to describe God, but he doesn't have two eyeballs that are searching. It's saying that God is, sees all things. He knows all things. Okay. What then is the opposite of that? That's anthropomorphic. What would be theomorphic? Theomorphic would then be giving qualities, characteristics, or actions that are done by God to something that's not God. So for example, human beings are made by God in the image of God. Marriage, likewise, is an image of the love of God. God type love, the type of love that God has, that characteristic and that quality, God type love is intended or embedded into earthly institutions because human beings ought to emulate the unconditional love that God has displayed. So you see how that's working. When when marriages are functioning in a godly, healthy way, the love that is taking place in that union of one flesh, that oneness, that should give you an image or a picture of what the love of God is like. Now, it's not equal. It's not like a one-to-one correspondence, so it's not like human love is just as good as God's love. What I am saying, though, is that when you look at an earthly marriage properly functioning, you should get a glimpse and a glimmer of the love of God. When two people in a holy covenant are loving each other properly, you get a glimpse and glimmer of the love of God that he has for his people. It's a living, walking, breathing example of the gospel. This is, I mean... what, the, what Paul is saying is profound and has thousands of implications. I mean, you could just sit on this for, for, for so long. If you have kids, and if you have young kids, if you have very young kids, pay, pay close attention to what I'm about to say. Before your child can understand the intricacies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will observe the love that their father has for his bride. Before your child has the cognitive capability to even formulate complex sentence structure, they will be observing the love that dad has for mom. And that gives them an image of the love of God. They will say, Oh, that's what love looks like. Now, is dad's love as good as God's love? No. That's, that's the point of the, the theomorphic language. It's not equal. But they get a glimpse and glimmer of the same type of love. 
And so that's why I always tell people when, when even, even when there's divorce and marriages fall apart and there's all kinds of stuff that breaks down, you do your best to, to, to show your kids the utmost care and respect for their mom or for their father because it's demonstrating something to them on, a, on the fundamental level. And you have to be, and, and, and I understand that because we live in a fallen, broken world, not everyone even has that opportunity. Many of you are, are single parents. And you do your best with the, the situation that, that, that you've inherited and that you're in. But again, I don't want to be sensitive to such a degree that we fail to point people to the highest standard that God has given us. And that's a husband loving his wife as Christ loves the church. Now, out of this, Jesus then continues and immediately talks about oaths. And you can see how this is all directly connected. Oaths and vows. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus is saying when you, when you make a covenant, you make a vow, you shouldn't have to swear to God that you'll follow through on it. A Christian's word is their word. And he's likely commenting, again, from Deuteronomy chapter 23. It says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you should not delay it, delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. In other words, when you make a covenant and bring God's name into it, he's going to hold you to it type of thing. So the kind of wisdom that Jesus, like, it's twofold. It's, it's like wisdom and then just let, let your integrity speak for itself. It's like, don't, don't bring, like you're gonna attach God's holy name to this? Don't you know that then that's the, that's the degree? And then on top of that, Jesus is saying, a Christian shouldn't have to make extra promises or vows because a Christian's character should speak for itself. And so there's this logical downward flow because apparently in Jesus' day, people were, they were making promises, but they knew Deuteronomy. But they said, like, don't bring God into this, otherwise you better fulfill it. So they would, like, make vows to a, like, lesser on the hierarchy. They would go, I'm not going to call upon God's name. I'm going to swear by heaven. And so Jesus says, you can't swear by heaven. That's the throne of God. You're still bringing God into this. But then people would say, well, I'm going to swear by earth. And Jesus is like, that's the footstool. You can't swear by that. That's still swearing by God. Well, I'm going to swear by the holy city of Jerusalem. And Jesus says, that's the city of the great king. That's still swearing by God. And then it's like, well, I'm just going to swear by my head. He's like, dude, you can't even control the gray hairs from appearing. And you think you could swear by that? In other words, God is sovereign over your head as well. Only he controls that. Now, some of us know that intimately. It's like, man, I can't do anything about this. It's out of my hands. And so he's like, no matter what you swear by, it goes up the ladder to God. Even if you were to swear by a rock, don't you know who created that rock? That rock is a part of sacred creation. God made that. So how about you just let your yes be yes and your no 
be known. Let your character stand for itself. Now, this is actually much harder than people think because it's like you get past the marriage one that's all difficult and then you're like, glad we're to the good stuff, don't lie. It's like, look, our culture is filled with lies. It's like everyone's lying all of the time and lying that they're not lying. It's all over the place. It's all over the place. And it's easy to go, yeah, there's lies over here. These people lie. But you got to know, man, it's in you too. You lie. You just exaggerate your story just a little bit. You're in an argument with your spouse and and you know you're lying, but you got to prove a point. You lie because you didn't do something at work and you kind of push it to the side or get someone else in trouble. You tell lies to yourself. You speak lies to yourself about who you are. We are lying machines. It's very difficult to speak truth consistently all of the time. I understood how big lying was in our culture around the age of junior high when I participated in this. It's this weird ritual that takes place. It's like a secular ritual in junior high. And some of you are going to know what I'm talking about. Um, It takes place in a room where pretty much no one needs to say anything, but there's this like immediate covenantal contract that's made that says, we are all going to lie together and pretend as if we didn't lie. And it happens in the classroom when a teacher says, okay, students, rather than pass your tests forward, go ahead and pass them to your neighbor to your right and we're gonna grade each other's papers. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about, man. Maybe that some of you, depending upon what generation you went to school, they did or did not do this. But when I was in junior high, often, and if you're a teacher, I'm sorry, but break your heart right now. Breaking your heart. It's math class, seventh grade, took the test. Okay, give it to your friend on the right, and we're going to grade each other's work. And then immediately, without even speaking a word, the, the ritual commences. You look over at your partner, you just make eye you don't have to say anything. You both just look at each other and you affirm the covenantal contract. And you both know at that moment, you're both going to change each other's answers so that you both get good tests. And everyone, you look around in the classroom, everyone's got the look. Everyone's lying. Everyone's going to turn those papers in, act like nothing happened. Now, if you're like in this room, you're like, I never did that. I was never, I was never, good for you. Good, great job, man. Good. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that... Stick with us for a few weeks. The Sermon on the Mount's going to get you. It's going to get you. But if little Isaac in junior high school looked around, you're telling me we, and sometimes, or even better, remember, you can grade your own test? Do you remember this? I'm going to grade my own test? And you came prepared for those classes. Never use pen. You, it was premeditated. You use pencil because just in case you had to erase. So it's like from an early age, you start participating in lies. And here's, here's the thing with lies. Every time you lie, you create a fictional world. And sometimes that fictional world is just here for a blip. It's like in and out of an existence, so it's no big deal. But the more you lie, the more these fictional realities begin to take root. And just like Adultery, it doesn't start off at the top. It grows from a a, a sprout of lust. Lies begin to grow and to grow and they multiply and the weeds take over the yard. And pretty soon you are living in a fictional reality 
and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's one of the most sad things to observe. People spend their lives lying and they lie to such a degree and create such a fictional reality that they no longer can tell the difference between the real world and the fake world. God wants Christian speech to correspond to reality because if you don't, the fiction that you create will become your reality. And I've seen this and many of you have seen it. People have views of their marriage, of their friendships, of their family that are not based on reality. And they believe them because for decades they've been spinning the web of lies. And then you don't, e- you don't even know what's real. And some people tell themselves lies so much that it's very difficult for them to hear the truth. Even when it's good, even when it's something like God loves you, the lies kick in. No, he doesn't. Because the fictional reality has been lived in. You've lived in that narrative for so long, you don't even know how to get out. So what do you do? You do the same thing that you do with adultery. You stop the lust at the roots. You do the same thing with murder. You stop, you stop it at the roots of, of anger. And so you begin to be a person who tells the truth even in the small things. You be radically committed to being a truth teller. Followers of Jesus, a Sermon on the Mount people have speech that corresponds to reality. Now what's fascinating about this is Jesus sandwiches that discussion about marriage in between two things. What? Lust and lies. Keeping promises and telling the truth and lust. And in the middle of that is a talk on marriage. It's as if to say, if you ruthlessly deal with the weeds of lust and lies in your life, watch what it'll do for marriage. Your marriage will be in a significantly better place if you go after the lust and lies in your life. So many marriages would have been saved if people very early on identified the lust and the lies and dealt with them. But over time, it's no big deal, no big deal. You just let it grow, you let it grow, and then it's too much and it takes over. So the practical kind of takeaway for us today is if we're going to be a Sermon on the Mount people, we need to be people who honor vows and covenants. And we do so by beginning to have speech that corresponds to reality, that we begin to be truth tellers, that we begin to be people who are committed to the promises that we make. We let our yes be yes and our no be no. That's difficult. But if you don't deal with it, the difficulty that you will face down the road will be far greater than the little weeds. And we all know that metaphor. Get the weeds when they're this big before they're four feet tall with demon barbs coming out. You know? Very difficult. Okay, now, last thing. Everyone's at a different place of life. I know there's, there's tons of questions more. We'll, we'll get to those when we hit Matthew 19. But there's this uh, thing that unites us all, thing that brings all of us together. Whether you've lost a spouse from death or from divorce whether you've experienced a marriage that dissolved, whether you're single, whatever place in life you are at, there's a thing that unites us. Remember, earthly marriage is the signpost pointing to the heaven 
the heavenly reality, the spiritual reality, the greater reality, the marriage of Christ and his church. So where you're at today, if you are a follower of Jesus, you participate in that heavenly marriage where there is a true and good faithful husband who will never leave you nor forsake you. And so no matter what's in your history, no matter what's in your background, no matter what pain, abandonment, betrayal there may be, what is more true than that past is the present state that says you are a part of the bride of Christ, married to the faithful and true husband. From heaven he sought you. His words are true. His promises are true. And a quick word for those of us who Oftentimes there could be a, um, you get a little breath of arrogance um, when you, when you know, you, you, my, my past is clean, man. My marriage is great. Everything's perfect. We honor God's law. And that's why our marriage is so perfect and so wonderful. And it's like, good, I'm happy. That's the happiest thing. That's, I'm so glad for you. But before we get too arrogant, just remember, marriage is the signpost. And in the ultimate marriage, the ultimate reality, you played a role. And the scriptures say that you were the rebellious, adulterous, wayward bride who was unfaithful to your end of the covenant. And God himself, in the person of work of Christ, the faithful husband, sought you out in your rebellion. And rather than put you away or divorce you, he forgives you and brings you in and establishes a new marriage covenant, the new covenant. So all of us are on equal standing in the ultimate marriage. We were wayward, but the faithful husband sought us out when we were least deserving and brings us in with forgiveness and love and says, let's do this again. Let's try this one more time. And it's as if God himself asks you your hand in marriage once again and he brings you in. And so no matter where you're at, take comfort in that. This world has fallen and broken and everyone's got different hurts and pasts, but the most true thing about you is as a follower of Jesus, you have been brought in to the faithful husband's house who will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's stand as we take communion. Now this is... This is where communion has a way of being haunting at times. Because listen, listen to the words, listen to, listen to the words that Jesus establishes for the believer. What do the scriptures say? On the night Jesus was betrayed. When he was betrayed, he went after his bride even unto death. We betray, he is faithful. And so he says, this is my body broken for you. You take this and you remember the deeds of the faithful husband. And then the, the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. This is the new marriage, the new covenant. And Jesus has given us his faithfulness. And the scriptures tell us, as long as we are here on earth, we ought to be faithful to him 
declaring his death and resurrection until he returns. So out of the faithfulness given to us, Lord, we pledge our allegiance to you in this new covenant to continue to be faithful by preaching the death and resurrection until you return. So Father, I pray for every single person in this room that we would be a truth-telling people, that we would be a faithful people, Just as you have been faithful, help us to in turn be faithful to you. And thank you that as a wayward bunch, a wayward people, a rebellious people, you did not give up on us, you did not forsake us, but from heaven you sought us, and with your blood you initiated the new covenant, the new marriage. We give you thanks and we honor your son today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.